tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. It's quite clear that if you allow anybody uh, to identify as a woman and inherit the rights of women, then you're not going to just make life easier for transsexuals. You're going to open it up to anybody. And it just stands to reason that if you uh, if you take away the safeguards and cause a, a safeguarding loophole, then anybody who is on the lookout for those safeguarding loopholes is going to uh, is going to be attracted to it. And that's what we've seen happen. Self-identification was a complete and utter disaster. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Debbie Hayton. Debbie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Brendan. So, Debbie, let's talk about your new book, Transsexual Apostate. It's a great read. The title itself is incredibly eye-grabbing, I thought, for two reasons. Firstly, you don't really hear the word transsexual very often these days. It's usually transgender. And apostate is a very loaded word, suggesting that um, gender ideology or the gender idea has become something of a religion. And if someone backs off from it, as you have done, that makes them an apostate. That makes them someone who's, who's fled the belief system. So the title of the book, I think, is very evocative. And the book itself tells the story of your own transition, your transition in 2012, and then gender reassignment surgery in 2016. And then your awakening. I mean, there is a, a really good chapter called Awakening, uh, where you start to ask questions about what you've gone through, gender ideology itself, gender identity as an idea. So that's what the book is about. It's a really good read. I really recommend it to listeners. But I guess I want to start off with a broad question, I suppose, which is what compelled you to write this book? I know you've been speaking and writing for quite some time and critiquing some of the ideas behind the new gender ideology. But what made you think, right, I need to get this down into book form and get it out into the world? Well, I think mainly it was I wanted to actually understand myself and other people like me and actually spread that message around because it's things that are not talked about. You mentioned almost like a religious belief system and that's what's grown up. Uh, but I wanted to look at what, what it means to be transsexual, why we're transsexual and uh, try to ground that in some science. And in this case, I was looking quite strongly at evolution and how our behaviours and how, how our personalities have evolved. Yeah. So tell us a bit about your own experience. So, I mean, the book goes into a lot of detail on this. The first few chapters talk about your, well, talk about your childhood and um, some of the instincts you felt to put on girls' clothing. And you talk about how often you would rummage in the bins to find your mum's discarded laddered tights and things like that, that you might be able to put on. And you had those feelings and those instincts for quite some time in childhood through to your teenage years. I thought your writing on puberty was really interesting because you don't necessarily describe it as a tumultuous period that was going to ruin your life. And in fact, you talk about having a sense of relief that you actually went through puberty and that ended up being a normal procedure for you because you, you weren't sure that that was going to happen. Uh, male puberty, obviously, that was. Um, so tell us a bit about that, because, of course, one thing you will know that a lot of people on the gender critical side will say is that this is an erotic fixation that some men have, that they are drawn to women's clothing and, and women, women, uh, uh, an outward woman's appearance. You say in the book that it was never erotic for you when you were growing up. There was something else going on. So explain to us what you think that was. Well, I think puberty uh, is a developmental process. You don't change into a new person at puberty. Who you are develops and grows. Uh, so I look back before puberty and what I would have articulated as feelings of wanting to be a girl were always there. I can't remember a time when this wasn't there. And I've tried in the book to go back to some of my earliest memories uh, in, in which this is there. But uh, just like most five, six, seven-year-old boys aren't really uh, focused on erotic thoughts about the other sex, they know they're not the opposite sex. They know that girls are different. They know that they're different. And five- and six-year-old boys behave quite differently on the whole to five- and six-year-old girls. 
when you arrive at puberty, you develop. As I said, you're not changing to a new person. Uh, so going back before puberty, yes, I was desperate to be a girl, but I, I pointed out in the book that it's not testosterone that drives that erotic uh, uh, desire for the opposite sex. So in my, in my case, it became an erotic desire to change my own body. Uh, but what I talked about then was it was the adrenaline I remember as a as a young boy, and I think I think many men will will share that idea when they were when they were young boys, you know, experimenting with life, trying out new things, and that rush of adrenaline is uh, it can drive you. And in my case, it was it was driving me to experiment with uh, very secret cross dressing. Yeah, very secret cross dressing, and that section of the book is really interesting. The the lengths that you would go to um, when you started to buy women's clothing and hide it away, and so on. Um, but just on the puberty question because you do dwell on that uh, a little bit in the book um and you've just said there I, th- I think something that will strike many people as correct which is that uh, puberty doesn't radically transform you into a new person it's a process of development it's a stage a very important stage of development in a person's life if you had been growing up now rather than uh, in the 60s and 70s, um, do you think the experience would have been different? Because, of course, one of the problems, and we can come on to the gender ideology stuff in more detail in a moment, but one of the problems with it is that it often pathologizes puberty, uh, especially for kids who are a little bit confused about their gender or unsure. And it treats puberty as this awful moment that you're going to be stamped for life with horrible bits that you don't necessarily want and i think it encourages kids to fear puberty um is that one of the things that worries you what what do you think might have been your experience had you been growing up as a a confused boy in the 2020s well in the 1970s 1980s i thought it was just me this is this is the issue and this was something which is so shameful that i couldn't share with anybody my fear, if I was growing up now, would be that I would be aware that other people are going through this. And what's more is it was possible to uh, stop that male puberty, which although I was quite desperate for at the time because I worried that I was so strange I wouldn't go through male puberty. And I also knew about uh, you know, how important male puberty was in order to have your own children, which is something I, I, I was yeah, I was. I wanted. I, I wanted that possibility even when I was even when I was a child myself. But had I been growing up now, the availability of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and uh, ultimately surgery would have been available, and I would have known it was out there. Now, my own experience was that uh, I was able to keep a lid on all this. I was able to keep this down. I used an image of a beach ball in the book quite a bit to keep this down but I was unable to hold that down any longer once I realized that other people were transitioning and other people were uh, doing what I desperately wanted to do had I been growing up now then I worry that I would have been in that position not as a 44 year old but as a as a 10 year old or a 12 year old and if I couldn't cope at 44 I'm not sure to cope at 12 and then the impact on children is it's just horrid what we're actually doing. Either you're providing those treatments uh, and then putting children's development at risk. We've heard recently that there is increasing evidence that puberty blockers stop cognitive development as well as physical development. You harm children, I'd say, in that way. Or alternatively, you say to children, there's this treatment which is out there, which could turn you magically into the opposite sex, but... The government won't let you have it. You know, gender critical uh, people won't let you have it. Transphobic society won't let you have it. And the impact on mental health then is uh, is just so profound. And uh, this is what children now are being presented with. It's horrid. And I am so glad I grew up before this was actually uh, a thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really agree. So you then went on to do in 2016 what um, a lot of transgender people actually don't do these days which is um reassignment surgery and uh, the section on on that in the book is is incredibly interesting quite difficult to read at times because this is a, an extreme and difficult surgical procedure that has lots of consequences and lots of lifelong impacts and and lots of things that need to be managed and you describe that uh, very openly and honestly um, in relation to that, I did want to ask you, I guess, to speak a little bit about how you understand the difference between transsexual and transgender. Um, because, as I said at the start, 
transsexual is just not a word you hear anymore these days. I, I don't know if it's now judged to be a pejorative word. I'm sure in some circles it is. Uh, everything is now transgender. And by everything, I mean everything from, you know, the 13-year-old lesbian girl who's a bit confused right through to the man in his 60s or 70s who just likes to cross-dress. I mean, everything gets collapsed under the same umbrella of transgender. It's very strangely broad, unconvincingly broad. How would you describe the difference between transsexual and transgender? Is, is surgery part of that in how you understand that difference? To be honest, I think these are just words, Brendan. I prefer transsexual because it's got the word sex in, and sex actually has meaning. We know what sex is. It's been around for a billion years. And uh, it makes sense to me to uh, explain to people that I, uh, I'm i more comfortable presenting in the same way as the opposite sex. So crucially, I'm perceived to be the opposite sex. So this is all about what transsexualism is and what transsexual means. Transgender is this word which has arrived more recently. Uh, it's had a number of meanings over, over the years, including people who are... Uh, outwardly uh, presenting in the same way as the opposite sex but don't have surgery. It, it had that meaning. But increasingly, it's become this umbrella term, which, which can mean just about anything. A transgender person is somebody who doesn't identify with the sex which was assigned to them at birth. It's meaningless. It really is. So I've tried to step away from that word. Uh, but having said that, if I'm described as a transgender person, I don't... I, I don't you know, I don't get upset about that. If people if people use that term about me, I'll I'll quite accept it. But it's it's not it's not my uh, preferred word. You mentioned about transsexual becoming a pejorative term, and I think it has been in some circumstances. And I think, well, what's going on there? And all I can see is a desperate urge among people to remove this from the concept of sex. It's almost as if this shame about sex is uh, obfuscating what we're talking about here. Um, so just on the surgery question, I did want to ask you about safeguards that might need to be implemented in relation to surgery. And as you describe it in the book, there's a little bit of eye-watering detail in there. For me personally, I was like cringing a little bit, not at the way it was written, but at some of the procedures that were described. It's an extreme intervention into a person's body, especially when it's full gender reassignment surgery. And what worries me about the contemporary moment is that you will often see very young women having double mastectomies and then boasting about it online as if it's no big deal. You will often see quite young people queuing up to have full gender reassignment surgery and having online diaries and, and tracing that process. And of course, we know about the situation with people who regret transitioning in that surgical radical way and who then realise that some body parts have gone and they're never coming back. The way you describe it, the reason I think it was incredibly helpful is because you really capture what it entails, not only through the surgical procedure itself, but then the aftermath as well and long-term consequences that have to be managed. Do you think there need to be better safeguards for this stuff? Does there need to be a more honest discussion about what these kinds of surgical interventions can lead to or can entail? What's your view on the surgical side of transgenderism right now? Well, I was desperate for that surgery in 2016. I really was desperate, and I hope I got that across in the book. It had become an, it become an obsession for me to put barriers in the way of people. People are going to climb over those barriers. But the issue is what that gender surgery actually does. We're told in activist groups, in support groups, that this surgery is necessary to restore your mental health. You'll never be a whole person without it. You'll always be struggling with mental health uh, unless you have that surgery. I don't think that's true. I think it can become an obsession and a compulsion for it. So hard boundaries have to be set in, in my view. I look back now and think, did I really need that surgery? And looking back, I'm not convinced, uh, certainly not as convinced as I was in 2016. But the difference for me was, it was three things, really. I was already an adult in midlife. I'd already uh, had all the children I wanted. And what's more, I'd already had a vasectomy. So that surgery took away my ability to, uh, you know, to have sex as a man. But in terms of in terms of my reproduction capabilities, that had already gone with uh, with the vasectomy. But what worries me there is, I went for a vasectomy as a 33 year old man with three children, and the clinic was quite happy about that. If I'd gone as an 18 year old boy asking for a vasectomy, they would have sent me away. 
And there's a difference there. The health service can deal with the difference between the 33-year-old man with three children and the 18-year-old boy without. But when it comes to gender reassignment surgery, it just seems to me that they're unable to differentiate between that in the same way. And if you treat gender reassignment surgery as a medical procedure in the same way that vasectomy is a medical procedure, then surely you should be able to differentiate. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Going online without ExpressVPN is a bit like using your phone without having a case on it. Chances are you won't drop it, you'll probably be fine, but all it takes is one moment of clumsiness and you'll be kicking yourself for making such an expensive mistake. So many people still don't realise just how risky not using ExpressVPN can be. Every time you log into public Wi-Fi at a hotel, cafe or airport, you're putting your private information at risk. Any hackers using the same network can gain access to and steal your data. It's actually scary how easy it is. Your personal info is a valuable commodity and there are plenty of bad actors out there who want to get their hands on it. ExpressVPN helps you stay safe online by creating an encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. That means your data is safe from hackers. In fact, it would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to crack ExpressVPN's super secure encryption. You don't need a supercomputer to use ExpressVPN, though. All you have to do is open up the app and click one button, and that's it. You're protected across all your devices. Even if you're not worried about privacy, one of my favorite things about ExpressVPN is that it lets me change my online location so I can get access to all the films and TV shows that are usually only available in other countries. ExpressVPN really helps me make the most out of my streaming services. So what are you waiting for? Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash Brendan. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Brendan, and you can get an extra three months for free. ExpressVPN.com slash Brendan. Yeah, I think the more discussion society has uh, about the safeguards or the, the guardrails that can be put in place in, in relation to these procedures, the better it is for everyone, including people who, who might then at some point have the procedure, but at least they'll have gone through a long thought process about it. Um, I want to talk to you about one of the really striking parts of the book, I thought, was um, you had your transition and then you, you had a social transition and then you had um, reassignment surgery. And then you thought, right, I'm a woman. And there's a really striking part of the book where it starts to dawn on you that there are other people out there, especially women, who don't think you're a woman. You have this great part where you say, I knew that Jermaine Greer did not think I was a woman. And I knew that people who I respect, like Julie Bindle, didn't think I was a woman either. And you, you quote a line from Julie Bindle in which she says, I don't have a problem with men disposing of their genitals, but it does not make them women in the same way that shoving a bit of vacuum hose down your 501s does not make you a man. It's interesting that um, a transsexual would quote something like that, because as you know, most transgender activists would consider that hate speech. They'd probably be on the phone to the police if they saw it in print. Um, there would be a, an extreme reaction to that. You became increasingly aware that even though you felt that you were a woman, there were lots of people out there who didn't agree and who weren't validating your identity in the way that you might have hoped back then. What was that like? And did you kick back against that? Did you rage against it? Did you say, yes, I am a woman? Or was it part of your slow awakening, as you describe it later in the book, where you start to realise that um, the gender idea, the idea that you can click your fingers and go from one sex to another, uh, just didn't stack up? Well, at the time, this is looking back to 2016, this dawning and realisation happened very quickly after surgery, actually, in that I'd had the surgery in February, and then it was beginning to dawn on me in the June, and I can date that by a meeting I was at, uh, where I was tweeted at from the room, and I, uh, I deliberated, and I thought, 
quite a lot about those tweets afterwards. But uh, at the time, I was developing a lot of other interests. I, I had various things going on. I was getting back into school as a teacher. I'd been out. I'd been out for the surgery. I was also developing a, a business. I'm an education consultant as well. I don't mention that in the book. There was only so much I could put in there. There was a lot going on in my life, so I had a lot of things in balance. And at the time, I didn't have as much time as I might have done, really, to ruminate on what other people thought about me. I was. I was too busy with life. That's what kept me going through that. But it became increasingly obvious that uh, this idea that some hormones and what is in fact plastic surgery can change your sex, well, it can't. And uh, what's more, that, as you say, that other people knew that it couldn't. Uh, Julie Bendel, that, that piece was quoted from something she'd written over a decade earlier and got into an awful lot of trouble for it, actually. But it was the truth. And if it comes to making a decision between the truth and what makes you feel comfortable, well, I've always been somebody who uh, will never be satisfied with comfort when there's truth to be uh, explored. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's a really interesting section of the book because I think this is where the word apostate really comes into play because one of the key ideas, I think, of the trans ideology or the gender ideology is is this demand for validation and there's a there's a striking part of the book where you say that early on um i guess maybe between your social transition and your surgical transition or maybe even in those months after the surgery you talk about how you didn't only need people to validate your identity in in a polite way but you needed them to really believe it you needed them you needed to know that they thought within themselves that you were a woman and that's a very stark and honest way to put it because I've often thought that the gender ideology has the same expectation of all members of society, that it's not even enough to be polite and to use their preferred pronouns or, or, or whatever else they might want you to do in a public setting, but also that they want to know that within your mind, um, you know, that almost that they've changed how you think about gender and sex and that you you accept the idea, for example, that Monroe Bergdorf is, is literally a woman. They need to know that you really believe that. And it was interesting to see you lay that out as that being one of your expectations. And is that one of the things that fell away for you? The recognition, firstly, that there is such a thing as truth and that having surgery or anything else cannot turn someone from one sex to another. But also maybe the recognition that having that expectation of everyone, that they would believe a certain thing that they didn't necessarily believe, can edge towards an authoritarian expectation and an authoritarian request that is put on people when it comes to these issues yes in order to uh, in order to be comfortable and i use that word again i needed other people to believe that i was a woman and what's more is i needed to believe that other people believed it so it, it was an extra stage on and it was when i was thinking i don't actually believe this myself at that point the uh, the circle and the cycle breaks so, yes, it is an imposition on the way other people think. Interestingly, since I actually started writing this book, my ideas have developed further. And I think there's some chapters towards the end where I've actually said that. And to, uh, to actually become comfortable in who I am, I've realized that transition doesn't change my sex. But what's more is it doesn't need to change my sex. And I think that was uh, that was another awakening, which I had actually during that process when you're writing this book and you're working through papers, you're working through what other people said, and then you're trying to express your own thoughts on paper, which is hard to try and get those ideas across. But at that point, I'd say, well, yeah, Munro Bergdorf isn't a woman. If Munro Bergdorf appears to be a woman, then you can get back to the, uh, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and sounds like a duck. You know, there's that argument as well, which I think is something that we overlook. Human beings are, we're social animals, we're social creatures, and the way in which we perceive each other is crucial. And I think that's something which uh, I've tried to explore in the book, and I think there's further to go on that. Okay, so I want to ask you how you understand the concept of gender identity, um, because this is one of the things that you uh, have your awakening about and you, you move away from and you become an apostate in relation to it. There's a striking part in the book where you say, without gender identity as a crutch, how else can I justify the surgery that I had consented to? Which is, a, when you think about it, a really profound question for someone uh, in your position. But you describe um, attending a meeting um, because, of course, as you say, you work as a teacher. You also worked for the 
Trades Union Congress as an LGBTQ representative, and you've done lots of work in, in those fields. You describe attending a meeting at which Julia Long, who's a pretty well-known gender-critical feminist and also a lecturer, um, she raised a question saying, basically, what the hell is gender identity? What do we mean by that term, gender identity? And I think that's one of the moments at which you start questioning it yourself, or it certainly contributes to your questioning process. I think gender identity is meaningless in the way that uh, the way that the term is used. Gender identity is the uh, gender with which somebody identifies. That, that's basically it. That's the definition. It's nonsense. There's nothing there. What I think has actually happened is that uh, treatment has become available. So there's uh, hormone therapy, there's gender reassignment surgery. That became available. And the medical profession needs a diagnosis. Uh, in order to access that uh, treatment, because that's that's the way that the medical profession works. So they created uh, diagnoses of gender identity disorder. It, it was originally, then it became gender dysphoria. We needed some uh, way of, of explaining why people had gender dysphoria. So this concept of gender identity was invented. And I don't think there is anything there. I really don't. And I think talking about gender identity and talking about uh, gender dysphoria even, it's a diversion from looking at what's going on. Really, we should be looking at you know, what is actually there when the patient comes into the GP, the psychiatrist, wherever, and says, I want this treatment. I want uh, hormone therapy. I want uh, gender reassignment surgery. Perhaps the diagnosis should be compulsion to be perceived as the opposite sex. And then we can say, well, why would somebody want to do that? And actually try to drill down and say, why on earth would somebody want to be perceived as the opposite sex? Uh, and look at all the different reasons why. And I think there's multiple reasons. In my case, uh, it's autogynephilia, and I've explained that in the book. But the condition which I have, autogynephilia, is totally different to the condition that a gay man might have who's trying to uh, increase the uh, number of men that are attracted to him. You know, or the uh, 14-year-old girl who's struggling with puberty, a female puberty. These are totally different conditions, and we should treat them as totally different conditions. And all that links them is, is this compulsion to be perceived as the opposite sex. That would uh, take us somewhere to actually understanding what's going on. To talk about gender identity doesn't explain anything. It merely explains it away. And I think I said in the book that uh, it's almost as like headache became uh, uh, a condition. Oh, you're suffering from headache. And this is the treatment for headache. And that's what we've done with gender dysphoria. And the concept of gender identity is all linked in with this. And I think it's letting society down, but more than anything, it's letting transgender identified people down because we're going into this treatment without understanding who we are or why on earth we need this treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I want to talk a bit now about women's rights. Um, you and I are not women, but we're interested in women's rights. We believe in, in women's equality and women's rights and, and so on. Um and you talk in the book about another thing that you heard Julia Long say at this discussion that you were uh, present at. She talked about how um, the very serious implications for women's rights and women's safety of an idea like gender identity, uh, particularly the idea that you can change from one sex to another through self-declaration or, or through any other means uh, as, for, for that matter. So that uh, someone born male could then become female and access women's spaces. And, and that kind of discussion that's been going on for quite some time now, and which really has exploded into the public sphere over the past few years. Was that another turning point for you, just thinking about what it meant for women and women's rights and women's spaces if people could claim to be women and even be legally recognized as women, often with very little transition taking place. Was that part of the process for you thinking, well, what is this gender identity about? What has transgenderism become when something like that can happen to women's rights? Well, yes, it was, it was self-identification which really blew all this up. Uh, before then, it can be argued that the law was following the way that people were interacting with each other. So that uh, in the early days, if, uh, if a transsexual went off to Casablanca and had the surgery, had the hormones and came back and was routinely perceived by everybody to be the opposite sex, then it, it sort of made sense for the law to catch up and say, 
it's absurd to treat this person in, in the same way as their birth sex for all purposes. So let's just let, let's just uh, make some changes to ease things through. And that kind of worked, and I, I argue that. But self-identification just swept that away. It took away the idea that the law was reflecting, I, I would say reality, though I suspect some on the gender critical side would uh, object to that, but the reality of what we perceive, and said that this was replacing the concept of what everybody else perceives to what the individual themselves perceives. So it was then very much focused on the individual, and that the only perception that mattered was the individual's own perception of themselves. And I saw this in 2016 when, uh, when it first arrived in Parliament. And I'm open and honest about this in the book. The uh, reason why I started campaigning was was not principally women's rights or the protection of children, but it was the rights of transsexuals. I knew how the law worked. And I I saw in 2016, if you're going to open this up to everybody, so every man can just say, I'm a woman and the rest of society has to accept that, then if society is not going to put in any safeguarding, then individual groups will put it in. And Julia Long is somebody who uh, who is a case in point, and other women will. And I I explained at the time in a piece on my blog actually that uh, if the law doesn't put in sufficient safeguardings, then informal barriers will be put in, which will be a lot less sympathetic towards transsexuals. Uh, so that was where I came from originally. But it's quite clear that if you allow anybody. Uh, to identify as a woman and inherit the rights of women, then you're not going to just make life easier for transsexuals. You're going to open it up to anybody, including people on the lookout for safeguarding weaknesses and loopholes. And it just stands to reason that if you uh, if you take away the safeguards and cause a, a safeguarding loophole, then anybody who is on the lookout for those safeguarding loopholes is going to uh, is going to be attracted to it. And that's what we've seen happen. It, it was no coincidence that the Isla Bryson scandal in Scotland happened only a month after the uh, GRR bill uh, was passed by Holyrood, because these sorts of things keep happening. That was just the first uh, the first scandal that happened, and it only took a month. So self-identification was a complete and utter disaster. You put it really well in the book as well. You say it must have been clear to anyone who had thought about it that if any man can self-declare himself to be a woman for all legal purposes, then women's boundaries become meaningless. And I think that that captures it for lots of people because, um, as you say, not only does it make it easier for transsexuals to do certain things and also create opportunities for opportunistic predators and, and male offenders and so on who might want to get into women's spaces, but it actually erases the idea of women's boundaries, women's spaces, it makes them meaningless because they're no longer for women. They're for anyone who sa- who says that they are a woman. So uh, you, you put that really well. And you, you say that in a chapter that's called Turf Island, Britain Against the World, which is a, a very good chapter. Um, I love the term Turf Island. It makes me proud to be in Britain that we, that we have so many turfs, which of course is trans-exclusionary radical feminists also known as gender-critical feminists or gender-critical women, gender-critical men. Um, I I wanted to ask you why you think Britain has become Turf Island. You describe it as Britain against the world because, as we know, the trans idea or the gender identity idea has taken hold among a lot of the Western world. One might argue it's also taken hold in Iran as well, where they have a lot of um, gender correction surgeries, as they see it, usually against gay men and gay women who have to be turned into the correct sex, as the theocrats understand it. Um, what do you think it is about Britain that has nurtured this these really quite outspoken um, feminists and also gay rights activists and even transsexual apostates like you and others uh, that we have got so many of those voices who are speaking up against this new ideology? Well, I think in Britain, it's a cross-party movement. Uh, Elsewhere in the world, if you look at American politics, for example, it's very different to ours. And the issue of transgender identified children is almost dividing the entire politics into the blue states and the red states to the point when the governor of California is offering uh, political asylum to uh, transgender identified children who who he feels are being oppressed in their own states. So that's what's happening in America. What happened in Britain was something different. It it was 
genuinely a cross-party uh, campaign. I think the uh, birth of Women's Plus UK in 2017 was crucial. And that was a group which came very much out of the trade union movement. Uh, so it was not possible to say that, uh, well, people do accuse uh, Women's Plus of being a uh, right-wing, reactionary, evangelically conservative supporter. You know, th those sort of accusations are made. But this is absolutely nonsense. The people who set up Women's Plus were respected left-wing trade unionists who were arguing from a position of uh, material reality. So that happened. Also at that time, uh, the Communist Party of Britain even actually understood what was meant by uh, material reality and sex is material reality. And we're not oppressed by, uh, by feelings, we're oppressed by facts. So, you know, the CP was, uh, I would say, sane on this. So across the political spectrum in Great Britain, there were people who were saying, this is nonsense. And we have politicians who are willing to stand up and be counted. When I looked at Turf Island, I wasn't trying to write a history of the uh, of the women's movement. That's for somebody else. I was looking at what, what's actually happening here. And the story of what happened in the uh, Council of Europe debates just typified what was going on, where unelected politicians of dubious democratic accountability were just pushing this through and nobody was saying anything. But we had politicians here, uh, people like Tonya Antianazi, who were willing to stand up and be counted. And that, I, I'm just so proud of those politicians uh, from all parties, which actually gave other people the confidence to say, there's something not right here. And that's what was needed to be said. But that battle is still ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. The section on the book on the Council of Europe and its gender ideas, and which means that even though Turf Island holds the line against our own government and our own activist class, you still have these interventions from the Council of Europe, which, as you point out in the book, we're still a member of, of, of that, even though we're not a member of the European Union. Um, so in relation to Turf Island and um, the response that some of these activists, uh, by which I mean the, the TERFs, as they are broadly called, I know it's a pejorative term, but some TERFs have reclaimed it as a badge of honour, I wanted to ask you about the response that these women, most of them are women, but there are obviously some men involved as well, the response they get from activists. You, you outline it in the book and you talk about the way in which trans activists would often intimidate women, you know, at Women's Place UK meetings, they would intimidate women, some of whom were old enough to be their grandmothers. And we've all seen footage of that. And we know that women have been hit, um, spat on, abused, called names. Their appearance is very often mocked by these um, young people, these young trans activists. There's a real, often often a very palpable feeling of misogyny in the way in which these women are attacked. And I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to get your view on whether you think that that kind of misogynistic sense where, you know, someone like J.K. Rowling is just ca casually referred to as a witch and a demonic force and a hateful figure simply for standing up for biological truth and women's rights. I wondered if you think that misogyny is inbuilt to the gender identity idea. Is it a key component of the new politics of transgenderism? Or is it simply the means through which they express their ideas in order to be as hurtful or damaging as they can be to the people who they see as being on the other side of the, of the barricades? How do you understand that very strong misogynistic sense that often bubbles up when they protest against TERFs? Well, this misogyny in society does keep bubbling up. Parallels have been made against the, uh, the witch hunts of, uh, of previous centuries. Times change, but people don't. You know, humanity is the same from generation to generation to generation. Uh, misogyny is there. Society keeps a lid on it. The danger is, is that when uh, misogynists think they can act with impunity and almost feel good about themselves for doing it, and that seems to be what's happened here, whereas the gender identity ideology has given misogynists a uh, license uh, to act with impunity, to unleash, uh, you know, unleash their hatred of women and their uh, need to marginalise women, shut women up, uh, speak over women, and then feel righteous about it. And that's what gender identity ideology has done. 
If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Yeah, absolutely. On the politics side of it, I think you're really right to say that, you know, the idea that gender critical thinking or this kind of activism and, and writing, the idea that it's a right wing phenomenon just doesn't stack up at all. And it's often branded far right, as we will know by, you know, trans activists and others, Guardian writers, whoever it might be, they will often say that turfness is a far right phenomenon. You know, Judith Butler says it's a species of fascism, essentially. Um, it's simply untrue, as you've pointed out. And as you point out in the book, a lot of trade union women uh, have been at the forefront of standing up for women's rights against the new ideas of gender identity. A lot of the most outspoken so-called turfs are women off the left, women from the old uh, feminist left. Um, and of course, Rosie Duffield is one of the most effective members of the political class who's raised questions about this issue and she's in the Labour Party although how much longer that will last is open to question I suppose as well as of course Kemi Badenoch on the other side of the benches who's been incredibly effective as well um, but in terms of politicians I wanted to ask you why you think so much of the political class has gone along with the gender identity idea um, either with real relish, you know, there are sections of the Labour Party who would, you know, die on the hill that a, a trans woman is a woman, um, or they've gone along with it seemingly because they think it's the right thing to do, like Keir Starmer, who for a long period of time stumbled over question after question about whether a woman can have a penis and who has a uterus and so on. How do you explain that, that sense of capture? Surely it's not down to the power of the idea itself, which you do a very good job in your book of picking apart. Is it because they want to be seen to have the right way of thinking? Are they scared of the response if they dare to say that a trans woman is not a woman? How do you explain the, the capture of the political establishment by a lot of this ideology? I think it, the political establishment has abdicated responsibility. They just don't think. Uh, beyond perhaps wanting to be kind, perhaps wanting to be inclusive, those 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 are good those are good things to live by, I guess. But uh, it's not then thinking about the consequences. That's what politicians have not done. This has been something for the uh, for the women or something for the LGBT strand. Uh, there's economic policy. There's defence policy. There's there's important policy here. I think it's looking at. Uh, Transgender inclusion, if I want to use that word, is seen as something which uh, is not crucial. It's secondary. So we thought about other things. It's allowed activists to dictate policy because if you need a policy on transgender inclusion, then either you sit down and you spend days thinking about the issues or you contract it out to somebody. And uh, too much thinking has been contracted out to an activist lobby, which is small and small in number, but makes a lot of noise and will produce that policy. And to uh, politicians and policymakers who think it doesn't really matter. I think that's the issue. Right. I wanted to ask you, I've got a couple more questions for you. And I wanted to ask you, this is a big topic, but we can um, touch on it at least, about the issue of children and the internet or children and technology and you you have a chapter towards the end of the book on children and technology and earlier on in the book you talk about the growth of the internet and the growth of internet forums where validation for one's um, presumed gender can be won very very quickly and you talk about the issues of children's relationship with technology and the impact that that can have on their understanding of sex, gender and their expectations of society. Now a few years ago I probably would have been a bit 
critical of the idea that the internet is to blame for the problems young people face. But I do think when I look at the way in which um, gender activism takes place online, it does increasingly seem to me that there is this very large, um, almost cult-like situation on the internet where there is a kind of um, contagion-like element to it. And you will see videos on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter or wherever else it might be where young people validate each other's identities very swiftly, condemn anyone who refuses to validate them, show off their surgical scars, boast about having their breasts removed or boast about going through, taking drugs and the impact that the drugs are having on their voice or their body or their facial hair or whatever else it might be. And there does seem to be almost a performative element to it, this creation of a pseudo community in which you can share your identities and share your interventions and, and everyone will just give you a round of applause and no criticism is allowed. That problem is not going to go any, away anytime soon, is it? And it might even be getting worse without wanting to be too pessimistic. How much of a problem do you think it is in relation to, I guess, the level of liberty children have to engage these ideas on the internet in particular? It's huge. And as a teacher, I, I, I see it. As adults, often our response is, if we ignore it, we can convince ourselves this is not happening. But children spend an awful lot of time on the internet. Uh, when we were growing up, I guess it was the television that uh, adults worried about, watching too much television. But whereas television was a one-way process and it came from a, a controlled uh, a controlled environment, i.e. the TV studio, the internet is totally uncontrolled. And who is influencing our children uh, as adults? We have no idea. And such a validation is there in the group. Within those communities, those online communities, individuals are totally detached from their bodies. And in an online group, it is so easy to transition. You can experiment with different, with different uh, genders. You can, you, can, you can experiment with transition. And it's as easy as changing a handle and changing an avatar. Uh, so children are, are, are in those environments. And then they come up for air. They come up to breathe. They come up to eat. They come up to uh, do their schoolwork. And then they're back in there. And uh, if we, as adults, just ignore it and hope it goes away it doesn't and we need to uh we need to first recognize what children are experiencing in, in those in those communities uh and then i know i don't i wouldn't say educate ourselves uh, i object to that terminology but simply just be aware of what children are experiencing we have a lot of catching up to do here uh human beings did not evolve for the internet and uh, how human beings then interact on the internet is very new, and for children whose entire life has been based on has been has grown up with the internet, this is this is what this is you know, this is this is what they're used to. This is what they think is normal, and then somebody comes along in uh, in real life and says, "Actually, you don't look like you don't look like a girl, so I don't think you're a girl." That then it just is devastating so it's it's stepping away from reality we've not yet worked out how to support children to cope with this medium yeah i couldn't agree more and i think the more that young people are encouraged to wrap up their whole sense of self and self-esteem and worth in society with their identity or with some identity that they have fashioned on the internet the more that we just encourage them to collapse the minute they encounter any kind of disagreement or questioning or someone saying I don't think trans women are women. You know, as soon as they run up against the normal to and fro of public discussion and public life, you know, they're going to have a nervous breakdown because they've spent their whole life in a bubble in which everyone is just being given them a round of applause for declaring their supposed gender. It's very, very dangerous, I think. Um, okay, so my final question for you, Debbie, you talk at the end of the book about you have a chapter called The Transsexual Future. Um, people should read the book so you don't have to give us the whole uh, lowdown on what that chapter says. But I did want to ask you where you hope the discussion will go next and whether you believe there is a way to balance um, women's rights, which are incredibly important and long hard fought for, uh, with transsexual rights. Um, and even, you know, with allowing children to have a bit more freedom than 
our generation might have had, but also making it clear to them that they shouldn't lose themselves in the internet and they shouldn't rush into any form of hormonal or surgical intervention. Is there a way of balancing all these things to have a society that is free and open-minded, but one in which women's rights are maintained, children's safety is maintained, and we don't go off the cliff edge of these kind of slightly irrational ideologies? Well, there's two things, really. One, we have to ground the debate and we have to ground policy in in reality and concrete truth. It's impossible to have a debate without uh, some sort of shared principles. If you're arguing from different principles, you're not getting anywhere. And that's what's happening at the moment. We've got one side which uh, says a woman is anybody who thinks they're a woman. And the other side who is talking about chromosomes and uh, adult human female. But In reality, we all know what a woman is when we see a woman. So we need to come back to reality. We need, we do need to consider chromosomes. We do need to consider how people think about themselves. We do need to consider how other people think about other people. That's all what it means to be human. So we need to reground the debate in terms of common principles, but also there's been a battle going on here. If I was looking five years ago, I would say that the, uh, the trans activists thought they could win. And they were behaving with total impunity that uh, they could could win and do what they liked. If I'm looking now, the trans activists have gone much quieter. They realise they can't win. But at the other side of the debate, the gender critical side, I think, is at a position where what I perceive here is they think they can win in that uh, gender transition will not be allowed. And if you're uh, born with XY chromosomes, this is the way in which you need to present yourself so that we all know you're a man, Debbie. And I shouldn't be uh, wearing a skirt out in society, this, that and the other. I don't think that's the situation either. I don't think in the end that can prevail either. Inevitably, in any sort of political dispute that's been going on, uh, compromise will have to be made. And uh, compromises that work are where everybody gets what they need And I think that's important. And for example, that uh, in my case, I do like to grow my hair. I do like to wear a skirt. That's something which I enjoy. Women need to be able to protect their spaces. We need ways to do that. So what people need. But a political solution involves inherently not everybody getting what they want. And that is crucial, actually. The solution to any political dispute, we all know that both sides can't get everything they want. But that has to be a given because... We can accept that we haven't got all what we want if the other side haven't got what they want either. If there's a perception that somebody else has got everything which they wanted, that's no solution. And we to get that solution, I said two things. One, to ground things in reality and to recognise that uh, we should be looking at satisfying everybody's needs and accepting that uh, not everybody can get what everybody wants. Debbie, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.